You're listening to Sex and Love with me, your host, Dr. Emily Jamia. This series focuses on all topics related to sex and love, both here in the U.S. and around the world. My goal is to not only showcase sexually empowered people, but also give a voice to the challenges many face due to the taboo nature of sexuality in many cultures. What motivates women to have sex? Well, it turns out there are 237 distinct reasons. Tune in to today's episode where I chat with world-renowned clinical psychologist, sex researcher, author, and professor, Dr. Cindy Meston, who was also my first ever human sexuality professor when I attended the University of Texas. In this episode, we chat about the many, many reasons why women have sex as well as women's sexual desire. Okay, hello to Dr. Cindy Meston, and hello everyone listening. Thank you so much for watching. Um, So I'm here with Dr. Cindy Meston. She is a professor at the University of Texas, which is my alma mater, and her class was one of the first classes I took, probably the first class I took on human sexuality in my undergraduate program, and obviously had a pretty big impact on me because here I am today. Um, And Dr. Meston and I recently reconnected because this is gonna age me. About 15 years later, my niece is currently in her class and um, called to tell me about this amazing class she was taking and her professor and how excited she was. And I said, well, I know because I had her as well. Um, And so I thought it'd be really fun to reconnect and have an interview. And that's why we're here. So Dr. Meston, thank you so much for um, joining me today and um, talking with me about your work. Absolutely. My, my pleasure. And what a fun reconnection it has been uh, to have your niece join my lab. Uh, I guess if it gets to the point of your great nieces joining my lab, it's yeah. going to be time for me to maybe hang up. <laughs> it's fine, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and some of the work you do? Sure. Well, I direct the Human Sexuality Laboratory at the University of Texas at Austin. We primarily do research on women's sexuality that spans all sorts of different areas, psychological factors like uh, depression and anxiety, a lot of physiological work. That's kind of how I started out in the field. Um, so looking at nervous system regulation of sexual arousal in women, um, I have one of the few labs in the world really that has the capability to measure sexual arousal in women from both a psychological and physiological perspective. So physiological meaning actual blood flow into genital tissue. So we do a lot of studies looking to see, you know, what increases, what impairs sexual arousal in women in terms of the genital response and how that relates to the psychological response, which um, in a nutshell, there's this very interesting desynchrony or discordance that you see, which you don't find in men. Uh, I can talk a little bit more about that later if you're interested. But um, so we measure all aspects of sexuality, sexual functioning, sexual well-being. We're starting 
to look at um, couples. It's very hard to do research on couples, as you might expect, getting two yes. people to come into the laboratory at the same time for you know repeated measures. And then the other big area that I'm very much interested in and have focused on for a long time is looking at treatment outcomes for women who have a history of sexual abuse in childhood. We know that um, there's a, a, sadly, a very high um, prevalence rate of childhood sexual abuse in women. There's, um, of course, not to exclude men, but the rates are much higher in women. And we find that not all, but many women in later adulthood uh, experience sexual or relational problems. So we're trying to better understand the mechanisms that cause that and what are the treatments we can provide um, these women with. So those are the main areas that I'm interested in. I'll just throw out there, uh, if any of you uh, listening are interested in reading more about my research, you can go to my lab website, which is mestonlab.com. And we have um, just updated it. So I'm kind of excited about it. We have information about all the studies and all of my publications that are free and accessible to awesome. anyone who's interested. Great. I'll try to link that as well for people. Um, Perfect. Thank you. So yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, I, I can imagine, especially with the Me Too movement, you know, in recent years that so much more has come out about, you know, sexual abuse and trauma. And so it's very timely, I think that you're studying that. I know, in working with my patients, it's interesting, a lot of couples, you know, will come in after they've been together, let's say, six to 18 months. And it's only at that point that some of the effects of past traumas um, rear their ugly heads. And, and I've always thought that to a large degree, that's in part because, you know, when you're in that honeymoon period of the relationship, there's so many wonderful neurochemicals, you know, surging through your bloodstream and everything is rosy. And, you know, it sort of masks the effect of any past trauma. And then when those neurochemicals come back down to normal levels, that's sometimes when people start to experience difficulties, like with vulnerability and connection and just with their sexuality in general, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the early stages of the relationship are distorted for everyone, right? The infatuation stage where uh, oxytocin and dopamine and all these feel good hormones are just going crazy. And uh, some people are kind of addicted to that infatuation stage because it feels so good. But the, the natural progression is that it doesn't last too long. Or, I mean, really, from an evolutionary perspective, we'd all die off pretty quickly if we just sat there and staring at each other and had sex all day long. We right. kind of die off as a species. So it serves a function, but a yeah. short-term function. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, you mentioned some of the work you have done around arousal non-concordance, um, which I think is so fascinating. Do you want to explain that to people? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so this is a, a, an area that's gotten a fair bit of attention in the last decade or so. Uh, actually, probably uh, the attention began with uh, in, in around 1998, which was when Viagra came on 
the market. Some of you may remember Pfizer introduced Viagra and it just revolutionized sex therapy uh, in men for the treatment of erectile dysfunction and just an enormously successful um, medication. So drug companies were starting to uh, look to see whether Viagra would also be effective for women. And, and what we found is um, Viagra works through a mechanism. It's, it's quite simple, really. It increases blood flow into genital tissue. So it, it works through a, a system called nitric oxide, which actually uh, relaxes the muscles in the penis so that blood can flow into them more quickly, more readily, and then it holds the blood into the penis, which is basically erection. And so they looked to see, and in fact, I joined the University of Texas right when Viagra had been uh, introduced in 1998. And so because at the time I was only one of three researchers in the world studying women's sexual arousal now, there are many, many more. Um, I was very fortunate to be asked by Eli Lilly to uh, take part in the initial drug trials for Viagra for women. And what we found is, sure enough, Viagra increased blood into the genital tissues of uh, women as it does men. If you go back to development in the womb, uh, it, it starts from the same basic structures. Uh, the, this undifferentiated tissue develops into a male penis or uh, under in the absence of a Y chromosome, it develops in the female direction and, and that same tissue turns into labia tissue. So you're talking about the same tissue. So it's not surprising when you give Viagra to women blood flows into their genital tissue as well. Now, the big difference is when you increase blood flow into the penis, it's a very visible response. It's very, uh, you know, there's a lot of tissue there. Men are used to attending to their penis because uh, they, from the time they're very little boys, of course, they use it to urinate. They're comfortable with their penis. Women, on the other hand, uh, less so. It's a more subtle response. So what we find is if you, if you increase blood flow into the genitals of men, they notice it, they attend to it, and more times than not, they say, oh, I'm, I'm aroused, I'm sexually aroused. Mm -hmm. And that kind of jumpstarts the whole sexual routine, right? They, yeah. they feel aroused, they wanna have sex, or they wanna do something to relieve the sexual tension. Now- I have an erection, I must wanna have sex. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's, it's, exactly. It's not necessarily the psychological thought first. It's sometimes, you know, they'll have this visible uh, physical response, maybe even something will, I don't know, in the, they'll be in the shower or, or uh, getting dressed, something physical will touch their penis, create an erection, and then that in turn will trigger the psychological experience of being aroused. So what we, and, and I'll, I'll just say, there's been many, many laboratory studies where if you bring a man into a laboratory and show him um, uh, erotic stimuli and you measure his erectile response using what's called a penile plethysmograph um, or a penile strain, strain gauge, I'm sorry. And you ask him how aroused 
he is, you get a very high correlation of about 0.9. That's an incredibly close connection to what his penis is doing and how aroused he says he is. Now, if you do that same study in women, which we've done many, many times in my lab, you get very low correlations of about 0.23. And so how that translate with, with the uh, development of Viagra is you get this blood response in the genitals but it doesn't necessarily mean the woman, woman wants to have sex or that she feels more psychologically aroused. And so there's this desynchrony in women between the genital response and the psychological response that it really is a, a very big and interesting gender difference between men and women, because in men, you have a very close connection and in women, you don't. So that... Um, that in a, in a nutshell is why here we are how many years later, and we still don't have an FDA approved drug for women's sexual arousal, because it's right. easy to, to put blood in the genitals, it's much harder to make them feel aroused. Right. And what do you hypothesize is the reason for that? Well, I, I think there's, there's many different reasons. I mean, just if we talk anatomically, you know, uh, the, the male erectile response is much more apparent, much more visible. It's a much um, greater response. So anatomically, there's that difference. Developmentally, you know, as I mentioned, you know, men are used to uh, attending to their genitals, women aren't. Uh, you know, probably less so with um, young women today, but certainly like my generation, you know, you didn't, your parents were, you, you were told to touch yeah. your genitals or it was like all the, all the gender socialization. I mean, it's like a boy's playing with his penis. Oh, look how cute a little girl touches herself. Honey, don't touch yourself there. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like got <laughs> messages. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have these, as you use uh, correctly stated, these socialization differences, you have anatomical differences, developmental differences, and then um, women are so much more contextual. And I think that's the biggest answer uh, or explanation, I should say, in, in that women are attending to their environment um, so much more than men are. So in order to feel sexually aroused, it's not just attending to the genitals and the immediacy of that physical urge you know, everything needs to be kind of right. If the cat hasn't been fed or the laundry hasn't been folded, or there's so many distractions in the environment and, uh, you know, relational issues. If there, if things aren't, I won't say perfect, but really good in the relationship, yeah. women have a harder time setting that aside for sexual gratification right. than men seem to. Right. What do you think is, are some ways that women can strengthen the connection between, you know, how they psychologically feel in terms of their arousal and their genital response to strengthen that mind body connection? Yeah. Um, well, you know, Masters and Johnson uh, were the first to talk about sensate focus and yeah. which, right. I'm sure you're very familiar with that, which is, uh, a, a simple but enormously effective technique, which is to basically focus on genital cues. Mm -hmm. 
you know? So it's, it's um, a way of training yourself to be kind of more mindful of what your body's doing, what feels good and being able to tune out some of the non-sexual cues. Right. And I think too, you know, this day and age, something I work with my clients so much on is removing technology as much as possible. I mean, how digital everything is now, we're not tuned into our bodies like ever, you know, like people don't just sit down and have a meal and focus on the meal. There's still phones at the table. They're, you know, phones when we're driving. I mean, they're just, they're interfering all the time. And I really worry about the disconnect that that is creating um, between our minds and our bodies. That's a very good point that you make. I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about this book you wrote a few years ago, which was such a fun book. It's called Why Women Have Sex. And you outlined 200 something reasons. I'm sure you know the exact number. How many reasons? (laughs) Well, in the initial study, we had 715 reasons and we condensed them into 237. Yeah. Pretty distinct reasons. Wow. That is amazing. So what do you think are some of the more interesting reasons why women have sex? Yeah. So, I mean, if I could just give a tiny bit of background of why we wrote the, or or conducted the study, actually, we weren't intending on writing a book. We were doing a study. Um, You know, at the time there was a lot written about, you know, what, what things um, turn people on, what creates desire, what, um, you know, frequency of sex, sexual problems, but no one had asked the very simple question of why do people have sex? And probably because it seems so obvious, well, you have sex because it feels good or you want to, you know, you're in love or you want to procreate. And, uh, uh, Dr. David Buss, who's an evolutionary psychologist and a, a colleague and good friend of mine, you know, we, we have offices right next door to each other. So we often uh, chat about uh, different theories of sexuality. And then one day I said to him, I, I, I said, this is really strange that no one has actually looked at all the reasons why people have, have sex. And so we d- set about to do this study. And you know, certainly um, there are a lot of reasons that you would expect, but a lot of reasons that also we hadn't um, thought that deeply about. So there's all the obviously love, you know, people have sex because they're in love, but it's not just because they're in love. It's because they're trying to get love, right? They're trying to have sex to make someone love them, which doesn't usually work, but uh, people try, or they try to mate poach, which is a kind of an evolutionary term for stealing someone else's partner. Mm -hmm. So kind of offering the sex, not no strings attached, and then, you know, kind of stealing the, uh, (laughs) the, or poaching the mate. Um, And then on the other side, mate guarding. So the notion here is, you know, you want to keep your mate. So you want to keep them sexually happy. Uh, You want to satiate them sexually so they don't stray, which also doesn't 
necessarily <laughs> always work. Um, and, uh, you know, to get over love. So it's not just because you're in love, it's because you want to get love or steal love or keep love or get over love. One woman in our study said the best way to get over um, a man is to get under another one. Uh, funny. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite quotes that yeah. we have in the book. That's hilarious. Um, so yeah, lots of different, interesting, unique reasons. So you do a lot of work with Dr. Buss, who um, I know is a big evolutionary psychologist, and I'm sure there's so much overlap between the work that you do. I'm curious, you know, in recent years, there's been such a movement towards non-monogamy and open relationships. And, you know, a lot of people will argue that humans really aren't meant to be monogamous. I'm curious your take on that from your work and, you know, from um, his as an evolutionary psychologist. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. There's certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in evolutionary theory. There are certainly um, evolutionary reasons that you could argue would propel men to want to have more of a non-monogamous mating style than women. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a real quick overview of the, of the evolutionary theory behind that is if you um, talk real core basics here, men have unlimited sperm throughout their life span. They can produce many, many children, um, almost unlimited. And if they don't stick around to rear them and, and you think of just a numbers game, you know, the more kid, children or offspring they have, um, the more they're going to spread their genes. And from an evolutionary perspective, when we talk about fitness, it's not just ourselves surviving and and taking care of ourselves but our genes what we leave behind surviving right so a strategy for men would be just to have as many children as possible and and you know some of them die off because you don't hang around to care for them then the numbers still might work in your favor well women have a whole different set of rules we are born with the number of uh, eggs that we can. So we are limited from the day that we're born. We, um, it takes nine months to um, have a child. And so that's not just nine months that you can't have another child. That's nine months of bodily resources uh, and wear on the body, right? And then you still have to make sure that child survives you know humans need a lot of care for a long time yeah. so a woman is really very limited to the number of children that she can have in her lifetime she has very few and so she has to choose much more carefully about who she's going to mate with because because she, she has to um, number one find a mate who has good genes you know, you want to be able, if you can only have a few kids in your whole lifetime, you want to make sure that they're genetically fit, they're going to survive, they're going to pass on their genes. And you also want to pick a mate who is going to stick around and help raise the children. And, and there's an 
you know, kind of evolutionary struggle right there because you've got your dads and you got your cats. You want the dad to, right, to who's going to stick around and raise your kids, but often it's the cats who have those good suave genes that you want to pass on to your sons. In evolutionary terms that you talk about them, the sexy genes, you know, the yeah. sexy son hypothesis. What are some of the sexy genes? Because you write about that as well. What what kinds of things are women attracted to? Oh, women are attracted. I mean, it's very predictable. Tall man mm-hmm. with a kind of V-shaped torso, you know, the bigger chest um, to, to waist. Um, women, you know, in personal ads, even in uh, sperm donor banks, women always select for tall mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, tall, muscular, athletic prowess is very sexually attractive. Symmetry is an interesting yeah. um, whole area of research that I just find super fascinating. There's been some evolutionary biologists who have done some really cool studies what symmetry is, is if you, um, you know, draw a vertical line in the, down your body, it's the degree to which the left side is equivalent to the right side. Now, we're, we develop in the womb along the spinal cord and we're programmed to develop symmetrically, but things can go wrong so that we're not quite symmetrical. So sort of anything, malnutrition in the womb, bacteria, infections, you name it, can lead to subtle desync, um, de- uh, asymmetry. And so it's like if you, a measure of symmetry is if you measure the length of your left ear and compare it to the length of your right ear and you take many, many measurements throughout the body so you have an index of symmetry. And some evolutionary biologists have done studies where they've had men wear t-shirts, sleep in the same t-shirt for um, several consecutive nights. And they make sure that the men don't wear any colognes or scented soaps or that they don't eat any foods that create really strong body odors. Mm -hmm. They collect the the t-shirts and then they get women to to come in to smell the t-shirts and to rate them on on a level of pleasantness to, um, you know, um, unpleasant smells. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that women rate the smell of t-shirts worn by symmetrical men as being much more attractive. It just yeah. blows my mind. Right? right. Right. Isn't it? it it's, I remember it's so I, I took Dr. Singh's class as well. Oh, yes. And he talked about these. Was it him that was doing this research or? No, it wasn't him, but he did the waist to hip ratio. I love Dr. Singh. He was was a legend. Yes. Yeah. Rest in peace. Um, So it it sort of suggests that there's this secret information that women can glean mm -hmm. from the sense of smell, which by the way, women have a much more acute sense of smell than do men that give women information about the genetic fitness of the man, Mm -hmm. right? Because they have to pick a genetically fit man to reproduce with 
like uh, that's an ultimate goal. And so it, it plays a greater importance in the mate selection um, of women than it does for men. men. Men are concerned with ovulatory cues, cues of fertility, you know, the finding a woman who will be able to reproduce. Right. Women are interested in men with high status, so they have the ability to care for their children and also genetic fitness so that they're going to pass on these healthy genes to the few children that they can produce. Now, th what I'm saying here, this, this is evolutionary theory. I'm not yes. saying this is my opinion or anything. Of course, of course. <laughs> yes. And these olfactory cues, I mean, are, this is pheromones essentially that we're talking about is that yes. right yeah. yeah 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 people are always curious about whether or not pheromones are a real thing and it would appear that they are well you know of course pheromones we know play a, a huge role in, in uh, mating uh, of insects and um, you know all mammals of all sorts of d different species uh, you know in in humans it's there's less known about it. We do know that the organ that pheromones um, in in the brain, the vomeronasal organ, it does exist in humans, but we we don't know the link between pheromones and behavior as well in humans as we do in animals and insects. And um, but it's also because humans. I always want to say, you know, we've developed really big frontal cortexes and we have higher order thinking thinking and de decision making and right. other um, mate preferences come into play so we're not just you know driven by these base hormonal or pheromonal instincts but there are the underlying desires there yeah i'm glad you bring that up just to you know for if there's any oh, guys out there listening who might be worried no no there's so course. much that goes into pairing up and you know this is just one interesting lens through which we look um you know yes and and when you talk evolutionary theory you know you have to remember you're talking reproduction um and and so you know, people mate and have no desire to reproduce. Right. And right. so obviously they're going to be making their mate preference choices according yeah. to other sets of rules. Yeah. Now, if you are a shorter guy out there listening, you may want to consider taking your partner to Six Flags. Why, Dr. Mess? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that you're referring to the role of the sympathetic nervous system in, in sexual arousal. And this is, gosh, my area of research that I did my doctoral dissertation on, and we're still doing research on it. But um, the human nervous system, there's two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic is the one that gets you going. It's the fight or flight response and your heart's racing and it prepares you to, you know, flee from the predator. Um, whereas the parasympathetic is more restorative. It does the opposite. And um, through many studies that we've conducted, mostly using exercise, 
intense acute exercise because it's a very uh, easy, controllable way to activate that branch of the nervous system. We found that in women, it really jumpstarts sexual arousal for women to engage in something that will um, rev up their sympathetic nervous system. So the easiest, of course, is exercise, you know, run around the block or have your yeah. partner chase you around the block or <laughs> um, running on any sort of intense acute exercise for about 20 minutes. Um, but then also things like riding a roller coaster, going to horror movies, they activate your nervous system. And if you're in, then put in a sexual situation that's pleasurable for you, obviously, it's not just, you know, having a fear response or exercising and all of a sudden you're going to want to have sex. But, but it, I'm talking from a physiological perspective, it prepares the body for sexual arousal so that if you are then put in a, a situation that is sexually pleasant and desirable to, to you, um, your body will respond more intensely and more immediately. Mm -hmm. And I think that research is always so interesting as well. Um, well, maybe we can begin to wrap up. Tell us what you're working on now. What's on the horizon? Yeah, uh, so we're, you know, doing a number of studies. I'll just mention uh, one that's going on right now where we're looking at physiological synchrony between couples. And by physiological synchrony, I mean, heart rate, basic, not entirely heart rate, but it, uh, it's called heart rate variability, which is a um, pretty accurate indication of how your nervous system is responding. It's more accurate than if you were just to measure heart rate. I won't go into all the details. If anyone's interested, you can go to my uh, website and I've got um, some information written about it. But the degree to which it, uh, couples are in tune with each other in terms of their heart rate variability and what we have found in now two preliminary studies is that couples who respond physiologically to each other um, report greater sexual satisfaction. And I mean, it seems, you know, like so many studies at the end, you say, well, duh, that's a no brainer. They're in tune with each other, but no one's looked at it before from, and actually measured their physiology. So one of my graduate students, uh, Bridget Freyhart, she's doing her dissertation. We were hoping to do it in lab, but now it's all um, taken to an in-home setting where couples have the equipment and they actually are measuring their um, physiological response during sex. So we will mm -hmm. co collect that data and look to see how uh, similar or dissimilar their bodies are uh, in their heart rate response during sex. And we're predicting that the more sexually satisfied couples will show more synchrony in terms of what their bodies are doing during a real life sexual situation. That is fascinating. And I want to talk to you more about that. <laughs> sign off because I'm writing actually a lot about attunement in um, the book that I'm working on and didn't know you were doing this research on it. So I would love to talk with you more about that, but. Um, Absolutely. 
So, okay. Well, um, anything else you want to share before we sign off? I want to, again, thank you for joining me. You've, you know, it's been such an, a great conversation. You've provided, provided such wonderful information. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's, a, it's a real joy to reconnect with you. How I, fun I, is that? I know. I think it's awesome. It's awesome. Okay. Well, I will link your lab and um, thank you again. We'll sign off there. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Sex and Love with me, Dr. Emily Jamia. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend or partner. I release an episode every other Monday. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Dr. Emily Jamia. If you and your partner are struggling with emotional and sexual intimacy, check out my online workshop available at www.emilyjamia.com. See you guys next time on Sex and Love.